The question I want to answer is not how can I earn the highest returns? It's what are the best returns that I can sustain and maintain and stick around for the longest period of time? I just want to be durable across all the surprises and all the setbacks and upheavals. So that's why I have a lot of room for error in my finances. Even though it looks dumb 99% of the time, if it can keep you in the game during the 1% of the time when everything shit hits the fan, it's going to pay off for itself like 10x over the course of your life. What is up, you sexy bankers? It is your boy Cash Cow, aka Rabbi Can't Lose, aka Noah Kagan. Today, we are talking with award-winning journalist and author Morgan Housel. In this conversation, we talk about money and personal finance. Me and Morgan are both pretty risk-averse, and Morgan, which I think is kind of actually unique, has a very patient and sustainable approach around how he does his finances. He does not believe in get-quick riches. Boo! It is not flashy on paper, but he is living a pretty wealthy life and seems extremely content with how his finances are. There's also some really unique approaches he does. Now, a quick note, this episode was recorded last year at a time when the recession was looming. So a few things that date this episode are actually surprising just how accurate they are and how you can use this episode today and game plan for the future. In this conversation, you're going to enjoy three gigantic things. Number one, Morgan makes a really unique case about focusing on preparation rather than predictions. We explore how news stories can impact the economy and why economic forecasts often fall short. Two, financial resilience. Morgan provides valuable insights on maintaining financial resilience, including minimal debt, cash reserves, and a portfolio of long-term assets built to endure surprises. Three, innovation in challenging times. Explore the correlation between innovation and challenge, particularly during economic depressions. He talks about the history of it and how things are repeating themselves. You can be ahead of it. Morgan has a new book as well coming out November 7th. Same as ever, I've already bought a copy. He'll also be coming back on the show in a few weeks to talk about more money and personal finance. We did a video with him and other financial experts on YouTube. You can check it out called The Psychology of Money on our YouTube channel. Also, if you're loving this episode about money and personal finance, definitely check out the episode we did with financial samurai Sam Dogan. It's one of our older episodes. Before we dive into the show, if you want to launch your own business, join our monthly 1K course. It has literally helped over 10,000 people on their business journey, and I know it will help you too. It's exactly how we started AppSumo and how I've started other multi-million dollar business. It's just 50 bucks. The price does go up over time. So if you're interested in it and you want to get a business going, go to noahkagan.com slash monthly 1K. That's noahkagan.com slash monthly 1K. Also, if you're not on my newsletter, y'all know what to do. Go to noahkagan.com and sign up for the newsletter. We have three actual tips for your business journey marketing, productivity. People love it. Go to noahkagan.com and sign up right now. It's free. Also, a special pre-show shout out to listener Ben Resnick. He said, exceptional blend. Sounds like a wine. Interesting guests, insightful questions, and humor. Noah's questions are very specific and dive into details and numbers as well as the deeper why. This is one of my favorite podcasts. I look forward to each new episode. Damn, Ben, I love you. And I love every other one of you gorgeous listeners. And if you want a shout out in a future episode, Leave a review. Have you left a review of the show? If you haven't, go do it. We check every single one of them. We'll call you out in a future episode. Money and recession and all this stuff is serious. This ain't Disneyland. Do people take money too seriously? Yeah, I think a lot of people have very little room for error. So when you get a recession, it's easy to be like, oh, whatever. Like, you know, the stock market reverted to back to where it was a year and a half ago. And crypto's back to where it was a year and a half ago. But for some people, that truly is a terrible situation if they have no room for error. The other thing is that a lot of people will just extrapolate everything into infinity. So when you have a decline, when unemployment might be going up, if you lose your job, for a lot of people, the feeling is I'm never going to get another job again. 
for which is it's not necessarily the case. But between those two things, no room for error and infinite extrapolation, you do get these overreactions. Yeah. What do you think about your book resonates so much with people, right? Because your book hit, man. It's a phenomenal book. I have my guess, but I'm curious what your take is. I think it's different for everybody, but I think there's two things. One is that it's a finance book that has almost no math or data or formulas, which is rare because most of finance is a math-based field. It's give me the formulas, give me the data, give me the charts, give me the spreadsheets. That's how it's typically done. And for most people, even people who work inside of finance, that's pretty dull and dry. And even if you like that kind of thing, even if you're kind of the guy who's, oh, I love Excel, I love the data, it's not exactly bedtime reading, it's work. And so if I could tell a story about finance through stories, like not data, I just want to tell stories about people who've dealt with these things. And most of the stories have nothing to do with investing, nothing to do with finance. Let me tell you a story about World War II and syphilis treatments and ice ages. Then hopefully it's just a little bit more accessible and interesting to read versus a typical dry finance. I think that's one point. The second point is most of the chapters are the length of a log blog post. In a typical book, a chapter will be 5,000 words. That's typically how a book is laid out. I think my average chapter is 2,000 words, so less than half the length. I was actually a little bit ashamed of that when I wrote the book. And I really felt like, look, I cut my teeth as a writer, as a blogger, and I know how to write the one to 2,000 word posts. That's what I've been doing forever. That's kind of my zone. And when I wrote the book, I first started to be like, hey, how can I write a 5,000 word chapter like every other author does? And I really struggled at it. It was really tough for me to do. So then at the end, I was, look, I'm just going to make these really short bite-sized chapters because that's all I'm capable of writing. But I think that ended up resonating with a lot of people because most 5,000 word chapters don't need to be that long. There's a lot of fluff. There's a lot of rambling. And I was like, look, if I can just make my point quickly and get out of your way, that might be the best for everybody. It's funny. I got a published book deal and I'm working on it. I'm having the same pushback. I'm like, this is all fluffy bullshit. And they're like, yeah, but it should be this. I'm like, I just don't want it. But I think one of the things that your approach, which is beautiful and it's inspiring for me, and I think a lot of others is just the simplicity. You're like, out of the house. I like this equity or this index fund. And that's pretty much it. What do you think is going on and what do you think we're heading into and for how long? I think for anyone to be observant of all of economic history, if that doesn't humble your ability to predict what's going to happen next, nothing is going to. Here's the example that I've been using recently. The Economist, which is like probably the most astute financial publication in the world. They do great work. I really admire. I love reading The Economist. It's not bedtime reading for sure. But every January, they put out this edition where they forecast the next 12 months. They're looking at the year ahead. Every January, they do this. Yeah. In January of 2020, their edition did not say a single word about COVID, of course, because it really wasn't known back then. And in January, their look ahead for 2022 did not say a single word about Russia, Ukraine of course, because it wasn't known. So like the two biggest news stories of those years of 2020 and 2022 were not even mentioned by the most astute economic journalists in the world, literally like a couple of weeks before they happened. And that's not a criticism of the economists because those things could not have been known. But to me, that's just this highlight of like, in any given year, in any year throughout history, the biggest news story is something that nobody could have known at the start of that year. And it's definitely true if we're talking about like individual decades, like Pearl Harbor, 9-11, COVID, Lehman Brothers couldn't find a buyer in 2008. All of the huge stories that had a massive impact were virtually unforeseeable. Now, you could say something like COVID. It's not that it wasn't unforeseeable because there were people who were warning about a pandemic for a long time. Bill Gates gave a TED Talk in 2015 where he's like, the biggest risk society faces is an uncontrolled pandemic. So it's not that nobody saw this coming, but the actual specific timing and the consequences and the policy responses and how viral it might be that's completely unknown. And that's when nobody was talking about it before it hit. 
that's a long-winded response to say, what are we heading into? I don't know how anyone can forecast with any accuracy today after they've just lived through what we went through. So that's an unappealing answer, but that's always how I viewed economic forecasting. And that doesn't mean just like being a fatalist and saying, oh, nobody knows what's going to happen. There's nothing you can do about it. I think the more room for error you have in your finances and just more you are able to withstand anything that might occur and be able to prepare for events that you cannot foresee is the best that we can do. There's a big difference between prediction and preparation. And for a lot of people and companies, you have no idea what is going to hurt them, but you know that they're fragile, that whatever's coming down the pike is going to destroy these companies because there's no room for error, either at the individual level or the company or an investing fund, whatever it might be. So that's what I always think about. I have no clue where we're heading or how high inflation is going to get or whether it's going to cause a recession or whether we're in a recession or whether we just finished a recession, but I have a lot of room for error in my finances. So whatever might happen, I'm set to be able to ride out the storm, hopefully. When you save a lot of room for error, what do you mean? I have virtually no debt. I have a lot of cash, which obviously when things are going well, looks like a mistake, looks like a dumb move. And then when shit hits the fan, it's the best thing that will ever happen to you. I think there's a lot of things in room for error. We have a lot of cash, minimal debt, things like that, where if you look at any individual decade, during nine and a half of those years, you look like an idiot. And during a six-month period over a decade, it's what keeps you around. And to me, if you understand how compounding works, compound interest, it's returns to the power of time. Time is the exponent. And the exponent is what does all the heavy lifting in the math. So for me, the question I want to answer is not how can I earn the highest returns? It's what are the best returns that I can sustain and maintain and stick around for the longest period of time. I just want to be durable across all the surprises and all the setbacks and upheavals. So that's why I have a lot of room for error in my finances. Even though it looks dumb 99% of the time, if it can keep you in the game during the 1% of the time when shit hits the fan, it's going to pay off for itself like 10x over the course of your life. What exactly are you doing with your finances today? And did you make any changes within the past year? No, there's really been no change. I haven't made any changes in terms of like allocation for a very long time, years, well before COVID. There really hasn't been any changes. I dollar cost average. We have a lot of cash and I save my kids' college. It's as boring as you could possibly make it and unexciting. And people don't like to hear that. And there's actually a thing in the book where in the, the last chapter of the book, I lay out how my wife and I invest. And I lay out what I just told you. It's a lot of cash, dollar cost average, no debt. And I got a lot of feedback from people. One of the most consistent pieces of feedback was, I liked your book until I read that and now I don't trust you anymore because it's so boring and so basic. And they wanted me at the end of the book to be like, here's my day trading strategy. Here's like the options trading strategies. I think that's what a lot of people wanted. And I also make the point that just because I invest like this doesn't mean I'm saying you should. It's just like, this works for us and you got to figure out what works for you. I know you invest your money very differently than I do. And I would never say I'm right and you're wrong. It's just, that's your personality, your situation. This is my personality, my situation. There's no one right answer for all of this stuff. So I like keeping it boring and basic, A, because so then I can go focus my time and mental bandwidth on other things that I like doing, my family and going for hikes and kayaking and that kind of stuff. And B, it's because if it's super simple, I think I'll have the highest chance of sticking around for the longest period of time and actually letting that money compound for the next 50 years and ending up with more money than I would have if I had a more flashy, exciting allocation, even if that allocation earned higher returns in most years. How do you tell yourself not to chase the shiny objects? What do you tell yourself? Yeah. I think a lot of that is just a personality thing. I really don't feel like I've ever had any attachment to FOMO. It's never bothered me in the slightest. And my entire investing career, there've been a lot of people around me, my friends who are earning higher returns than me in any given year. And it's never bothered me. It's never bothered me in the slightest. 
I've never owned crypto and it's never bothered me in the slightest. And that's really not just like a justification after missing returns. I feel like it's always been like that. But I feel like, A, that's just a personality thing, but I also think it's one of the most important investing traits that you could have. Because everything that we know about investing history for going back a century or more is that chasing the shiny object is what screws people. It's what ruins people. And particularly when the object is so shiny that you're like, I'm going to go into a crazy amount of debt to buy this thing because it's so shiny, I can't get enough of it. That's always what ruins people. Three Hours Capital is some of the smartest crypto investors that are around. So I had like more information, more knowledge, more data than anybody else. And they're bankrupt because they wanted to do a crazy amount of debt doing. And there's more nuance to that. That story is repeated in every market cycle. 2006, the 1990s, you have the smartest people with the best information, the most knowledge, the best education, who should be the best investors. But then they lever up and everything explodes in their face. That's a story that is repeated throughout history and I think always will. Can you high level describe your allocation percentages? I think for the audience that's going to be out there, they'll be like, okay, he's doing how much cash, how much in, in a house, and, or just at least at a high level. Yeah. This is all really rough. I'm just throwing these together in my head right now. Real estate, housing, a little less than 10% of the net worth. Cash, maybe about 10%. And the rest, stocks. That's pretty much it. It's super simple. And that's mostly index funds? Mostly, yeah. I'm on the board of Markel, so I own a lot of Markel stock as well. That's the individual company that I own. I own some Berkshire Hathaway. I've held that for years and I haven't sold. A, because I like it and I think it's a great company, but also for tax reasons, I haven't sold. Other than that, it's all indexed, yeah. And what opportunities are you seeing now? I'll give you just a really broad answer to that question. It's always the case that the most innovation by far, by like an order of magnitude, takes place when the economy is on fire. And most innovation does not take place when everyone is happy and gainfully employed and the economy is booming. Innovation takes place when if we don't figure out this problem today, we're all going to die tomorrow. The Great Depression, World War II, and the Cold War, those events specifically sparked more innovation than anything else in modern history. And the innovation didn't take place despite those events. It took place because of those events. Like World War II was like nuclear energy and rockets and jets and GPS and penicillin. Go on down the list of things that were invented for World War II. And I bring that up because both in the last two years, a lot of things have been on fire in the world, whether it's COVID and Russia, Ukraine recently, and the crypto meltdown, like all those meltdowns suck in real time and they hurt people in real time. And it's always the case and always will be the case that you look back and be like, there's all these new innovations that took place because of those terrible, awful, God forsaken periods that we lived through. So where's the opportunity right now? I'm not a stock picker. I'm not an industry picker. So I'm probably the wrong person for that question, but I'll give you the very broad view of this, which is that there's no question in my head that 10 years from now, we're going to look back and say, because of COVID, because the world was on fire for years or more, there's all these amazing innovations that we all benefit now from that happened specifically because of that. There's crazy stats that are somewhat disputed, but I think they're like directionally accurate that penicillin was not invented, but put into use because of World War II. If it wasn't for World War II, penicillin would have been delayed by years or decades. And penicillin by most estimates, has saved more lives than World War II claimed. So you can make these crazy claims that like World War II actually saved more lives than it took, which gets into these moral crazy thing. But there's all these weird things that happen like that during these periods. The other thing that I think is interesting is that the supermarket came about from the Great Depression. Before the Great Depression, you went to the bread store and then you went to the dairy store. And all of that segmentation is not efficient at all. And during the Great Depression, most of those companies went bankrupt. You just couldn't stay alive. And the only way that you could sell food 
was by integrating everything under one roof and having those economies of scale. And if it wasn't for the Great Depression, that might not have come about. The laundromat is, is the same thing. Most people could not afford to do their own laundry during the Great Depression. But if you could put a bunch of stuff under one roof and get those economies of scale, then it could work. There's like endless examples of these things happening, of the world getting better because the world was in a shitty situation. We were forced to. What do you recommend people not to do? I don't know if you'd call this a recession now. Would you call it a recession? It always gets into the semantics. There's an organization, the National Bureau of Economic Research, that is tasked with officially designating whether we're in a recession. Once you hear who those people are and what their metrics are, who cares what they say? If you are in a shitty situation, then it's a shitty situation. And if you're not, then it's not. It's all just an individual thing. What would I recommend people not do? I would recommend people not try to extrapolate what's going on today into the indefinite future. Inflation is going to come down. The economy will get better. The market will rebound. Like We know that with very high certainty. Do we know when it's going to happen? Of course not. Do we know how long this is going to last? No, of course not. But it's always the case that whenever you have something bad or something great in the economy, that those events plant the seeds for their reversal. So the fact that inflation is so high right now, it's probably going to cause some demand destruction. When there's demand destruction, when people stop buying airplane tickets, when people stop remodeling their homes and whatnot, that is a force that's pulling inflation back down. That's always the case. And it's so easy to ignore those counterbalancing forces. It's like the famous quote, the cure for high prices is high prices. Once prices are really high, it sets into motion all these different forces that pull prices back down. My favorite example of this was in 2008, which was the last time that oil was over $120 a barrel, where it back is today. During that period, there were all these forecasts of, oh, now next is going to go to 250 and then it's going to go to 500 And we're going to get to a point where gas costs so much that airplanes won't be able to take off. The airlines will just say, we can't do it anymore. Those are the forecasts in 2008. But what those high prices did is it incentivized oil companies because you could earn so much money for drilling oil to really figure out and innovate and implement fracking and horizontal drilling, which was the cure for higher prices. And that's why prices came down so much over the subsequent decade was because prices were so high, it sparked this massive boom of oil production in the United States. I was imagining a lot of our audiences, like younger males, 18 to 30, if they don't have a lot of money, they don't have debt, but they don't have a lot of cash coming in, they just lost their job. What would you recommend for them? How to approach it right now? I think it's still the case that right now, today, when even if things have gotten a little bit worse, we're probably in the strongest job market in two generations. It's never been as easy to find a job as it is today. That's not saying everyone will, or everyone will find a job that they like, or everyone will find a job where they think they're earning enough money, but things are pretty good today. And I bring that up because I think for a lot of people who are unable to find a job today, not in every situation, but by and large, it comes down to expectations. And if you're unable to find a job today right now, it's probably because your expectations are too high. There are a lot of people out there hiring today. They will put you in a uniform today. And if you're unable to find the job, I think for most of these people, it comes down to their expectations are too high. I think that's the hard truth of it. Yeah, it's very interesting. Yeah, it's sometimes when people talk about business, I'm like, people are still watching shows, people are still going out, people are still spending money, people are still hiring. It's just like, how do you make yourself either valuable enough or I like your point about expectation, like what you're willing to expect that I have a friend, he makes like probably about 150. And for fun, he does DoorDash on a bike. Yeah. Like I can control money. Plus I get a workout. And I was like, oh, I, I like that. At least he's, he's doing something about it. Yeah. This was true a year or two ago when a lot of businesses said, we can't hire, we can't find enough employees. I was thought like, no, that's wrong. Your expectations are just too low. If you pay people a market rate, you'll be able to hire people tomorrow. And so you had 
all these like fast food places who are like, we can't hire people at $8 an hour. Like, yeah, no shit. No, nobody wants to work for $8 an hour anymore. If you pay them $15 or $20 an hour, you'll be able to hire as many people as you want. So that flips when we're in periods where people can't find jobs. No, you can find a job if you lower your expectations to where they need to be. What's your thought on real estate right now? Real estate is interesting just because the move from 3% mortgages to nearly 6% mortgages or over six in some cases right now, the math on that is like catastrophic for a lot of markets. Where I live in Seattle, you look at what that has done to monthly payments because Seattle real estate prices doubled from 2020 to 2022, 2X in two years. And they were high in 2020. They were really high then and they 2X from there. And you have a lot of these homes right here where for a pretty modest home, nothing crazy, a three-bedroom track home, the mortgage payment at new mortgage rates are going to be 15000 a month for some of these homes for a modest middle-class track home. And of course, they're not moving. They're not selling right now. And you look at that and some of these three, four-bedroom homes are being listed now for two and a half million. And you look at the monthly payment and I think you're overvalued by a million bucks. I think you need to cut the price by at least a million dollars on that thing. So there's sometimes where I look at these, not nationwide, but in some places, my home of Seattle, where I'm like, is it crazy to think that some prices could fall 40%, 50%? And the answer might be yes, that is crazy. It might be like, yeah, that's not going to happen. But sometimes you run the numbers and it might not be crazy. That's not a forecast or a prediction. But sometimes I look at these numbers, I'm like, I have no idea why someone would live in a very modest, mediocre house for $15,000 a month for 30 years. This just doesn't work. And the reason that they're priced at that level is because at a 3% mortgage, that mortgage payment was $8,000 a month, $9,000 a month, which is still a lot, but a two-income household might be able to justify it. But at today's rate, there's no way that's going to happen. It's always the case that prices are sticky, where people are going to try to get the old prices, even when it's not reasonable. So you've seen this already in the data of home sales just slowing down, if not grinding to a halt, because they haven't caught up with the new reality of interest rates. You're not making predictions, but you're saying home prices probably are a little overvalued depending on the area. Like my neighbor's house, it's like a three bedroom, one bath, like 1,400 square feet. It's in a good area, but he was like, I went over 2 million. And then plus Texas, we have the two and a half percent or two and a quarter percent property tax. And I'm like, for 2 million, I could get like an insane lake house or somewhere. Yeah. Right. Here in Seattle, the homes in 2018, which was a, a booming period, 2018, the homes that were selling for 800. They're 800 grand in 2018. By 2020, they were a million and a half. And right now they're listening for two and a half. And you think about 2018 was a prosperous period with low interest rates and they were 800 grand. And today we have high interest rates and they're two and a half million. Sometimes you look at this and I'm like, what am I missing? And maybe the answer is I am missing something. But sometimes I'm like, maybe I'm not. Maybe it's just prices are going to fall 50%. And that's the reality that we're living in. Yeah. I sometimes think it's like we get fixated. Oh, it was two and a half, three months ago. Like that yes. lag needs to actually get updated. And it's hard because particularly in real estate, how the realtor and the appraiser values it is by comps. And some of the comps that they're using are three months old. And so in that world, if those comps that are 90 days old are completely irrelevant given today's reality. Yeah. I got this house, thank God, at two and a quarter, 2.75, something like that. It's like if it was today, it would just be insane. But that's an interesting point as well, because the odds that you will want to sell that house and ditch your two and a half percent mortgage rate oh, yeah. are pretty low. Because yeah. if you were to sell and buy a new house, your next mortgage would be 6% or whatever. And then, so there's a lot of people like you, millions of people like you who are like, I ain't selling my house. So then that takes potential inventory off the market, which has 
the potential to push prices higher because there's fewer homes for sale. There's all these dynamics right now that it's just a wild period. I will still say, I think there's always opportunities though, but it's fascinating to me. There's no cost to really submitting offers. So if you think you can go out and offer 40% or 50% less and people are like, hey, yo, I need to sell this house. I need to like move or I need to be able to cover payments. Like there probably still is opportunities, frankly, of everything. I think if people are willing to actually put in the effort around it. The other element here that I think about a lot using my local example is why were people in Seattle paying two and a half million for a mediocre home in the last year? I think a big part of the reason is because there was so much tech and crypto wealth that had a massive impact. Have you had all these tech workers who worked at a startup and their measly little options, all of a sudden they were able to cash them out for $5 million. And they're like, great, I just got a $5 million windfall. Of course, I have no problem paying two and a half million for a mediocre house. Just in the last six months, crypto wealth is $2 trillion erased. That's a lot of spending power that people had six months ago that they don't have today. And how many of those people were using that crypto wealth, or at least just the optimism that came from that wealth, to buy homes and pay crazy prices for homes. That's boom, snap your fingers, it's gone. Dude, crazy story about it. Some girl uh, messages me on TikTok and she worked at Coinbase and she's like, I was a millionaire and an accredited investor. And now this week I'm looking for a job and I have no money. Yeah, and that story, you multiply that story a million times over. Yeah, man. Where does the money go, by the way? Like that 2 trillion, where did it go? It never really existed. If you look at a company that has, let's just keep the numbers around. A company is worth $1,000. Just keep the numbers easy. There's not $1,000 in a bank somewhere. It's not that like it's in a vault and like you can go like retrieve it. That's just what prices are changing hands for at that point. And then if everyone goes to sell at one point, it all finishes. So any market capitalization, it's not even a theoretical value. It's what people are exchanging for at that point. But if everyone goes to sell, then it's at a different point. So everyone, like people will look at their net worth in the stock market or in crypto and say, I own $1,000 worth of crypto just to keep the numbers easy. But if everyone goes to sell their crypto at once, if everyone goes to cash in that value, then everything explodes. So the answer of where the money went to is it never really existed. It was just the valuation that it could have been if you would have sold out at different periods. Yes. But if everybody sold, then it wouldn't be worth that much. So all market values really rely on the huge majority of people not selling, which is true. That's how it works. Most of the time, 99% of investors or whatever are not selling. And that's why it works. So that if you go into your Robinhood account and you want to sell 100 shares of Apple, like you can do that at today's prices. But if everybody at the same time tried to sell, then Apple's not worth anything. Do you sell? Have you sold anything? No. There's a couple of times, two, three years ago, when I had a chunk of stocks that I could sell without any tax consequences. And I did as I was about to buy this house. This house was way above the budget that we had planned for with the cash that we had, but we loved it. So it's like, okay, if we do that, I could sell these stocks without any tax consequences. So that's, that's the only time that of any significance in my adult life that I've sold. Do you mind sharing how you did it tax-free? It was just, I had purchased a chunk of stocks in the previous year, maybe, and maybe those stocks fell 5% during that period. So I was able to sell them without any capital gains. So it was tax-free because there was no gains embedded in that lot of stocks that I sold. Han, why'd you sell at a loss? Because I wanted more cash to make a real estate transaction. Now, normally I would say, I don't want to sell because I don't want the tax consequences, but there was this chunk of stocks that I was able to do because it didn't have any tax consequences embedded in it. Yeah. I like never selling. I just buy the things I want forever. That's it. Yeah. That's my whole investing strategy is like, can I stay in the game without selling for 50 years? That's the whole ballgame. That is a wrap. I hope you loved the episode as much as we did making it for you. Go give Morgan some love. He's Morgan Housel. That's Morgan H-O-U-S-E-L on Twitter and Morgan Housel on Instagram. 
Also, check out both his books, Psychology of Money and Same as Ever. Next, text a friend you love him. Yo, Doug, let's go spend our savings together. <laughs> Before you go, tweet at me or slide in my DMs at Noah Kagan. Let me know what you think of this episode. Also, go check out tidycal.com. It is what I use to schedule with podcast guests as well as customer and partner calls for AppSumo. It is free. It's growing like wild. You don't have to pay a monthly subscription. It's just 29 bucks for life if you want the premium features. As well, you can have people pay to meet with you. We have people making over six figures a year just doing that. It's tidycal.com. Finally, a couple of shout outs to the amazing team for making these episodes happen. Thank you to Jason at podcasttech.com for coming through. Thank you to Jeremy, Cam, Tommy, and Sylvie from the Dork Team for all the magic y'all do. Have a wealthy day. What's your favorite finance book?